Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, on Dying Light listeners. This is Pastor Alex back at it again this week with another new episode. Continuing our journey uh, through baptism and continuing to look at uh, this as a sacrament and hopefully covering all of our bases. I've had quite a few conversations with some people that have listened to these episodes so far. Uh, as they've been available for the patrons for a number of weeks now. But we are kind of in the, 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 the winds, if you would, of so many misconceptions of Christianity. Uh, and, and it covers a whole broad landscape. I mean, right now on social media, it's the concept of universalism, and uh, certain individuals are taking uh, quotes from church fathers and, and theologians and the reformers, manipulating them, twisting them to fit a narrative that's terrible that is absolutely that i mean to take a particular position and manipulate it to fit a you know for instance a christian universalism uh, aspect or belief then that's just you know that's straight heresy you know to hold that position and then it's just uh i mean it's just poor use of understanding church history poor use of language Poor use of interpretation uh, that, and it just sur- you know surveys across the landscape. Uh, but as always, there's always these forces that we will find that seem to be a misconceptions, or they stand in opposition. I mean, we uh, on on the Undying Light Discord channel, we're going through some of the early church heresies, and we have noticed that there's always a, a some seemingly a, a force that's opposing these you know the the true doctrine of scripture and i would like to you know uh, once we kind of work through the sacrament series and we work through some of the lutheran theology series on this show i would love to just uh, work on the small catechism for a little bit and really unpack what luther is writing there and we'll use the large catechism as additional commentary as we do that but the, the goal is to provide some of the most basic and fundamental teachings to the Christian mind. Because as 
a at, you know at the surface level there's there's you know a fundamental aspect to Christianity that all Christians should affirm and then once we unpack that then we can start to see okay how do secondary and tertiary doctrines fall into place with that can there be disagreements among Christians on secondary and tertiary doctrine doctrine absolutely case in point eschatology there's four major views you can hold to any view for the most part and not have a, an anti-scriptural position i would venture to argue that some hold better to the scrutiny and and pressure that scripture would apply to those views whereas some uh, have more questions that are left unanswered uh, when we get to more specific things outside of eschatology or you know christian worship and things like that we get into the sacraments and and I've said this a number of times on this series, but I, I think it really matters deeply, first of all, on your hermeneutic. If you read the scripture in light of baptism and the Lord's Supper being a sacrament, then you take that and apply that to the scripture and you will see it come to life like no other. If you view it in the means of it being merely an ordinance, then it really has no power. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't convey anything. It's merely the work of man. And one thing that I've been deeply convicted of become as I became a Lutheran and now more or less a confessional Lutheran is the concept and the fact that when I read scripture, it is comforting to me knowing that Christ gave us these, these means of grace by which he comes to us. We're not going to him. It has nothing to do with us. It is merely Christ coming to us. I mean, the 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 us that plays a role in this is merely the receiver. We receive everything Christ is giving through the sacraments. And we do that, you know, with the Lord's Supper when we make the proclamation that we do this in remembrance of him and we do this for the forgiveness of sin. It's not that you only get forgiveness of sin by partaking in the Lord's Supper. It's a remembrance aspect. There's, you know, we'll, we'll unpack that more in depthly, but it is a way that Christ can bring assurance to his people. And he does this through the sacraments. And that is why I am a stern believer in baptism and the Lord's Supper being a sacrament. And then you can argue, you know, um, absolution being another sacrament uh, and you can kind of you know filter in some other things we won't get into that too much for a while on this show but we will look at some of those concepts as we explore the Lutheran theology so last week we we left off with the large catechism uh, we're using the book of Concord and we're at part four um, kind of a subpart here with infant baptism and as I made note last week there was you know, 45 uh, statements on regular baptism where Luther unpacks it and demonstrates the need for Christians to be baptized. And, uh, and as we've talked, um, you know, Luther is much a big a proponent against, a, uh, opponent of the Anabaptist. And when that, what that orig originally kind of settles into place for us, is that in this time period, there were groups of people that thought that, you know, infant baptism was invalid. And so in order to be saved, you had to be rebaptized. That's one 
you know, major view during the time of Luther. And Luther had a uh, strong opposition against that because Paul writes that you are saved or we believe in one uh, baptism. And when we see that baptism is being applied in the singular text or singular concept or singular, you know, uh, version to a person, then it's one baptism. It's not Peter going say every time you sin, you must be rebaptized or get baptized as a baby. And then when you get older, get baptized again. So Luther and, and all the Lutherans for that matter, who actually stick to what Luther taught, hold a very strong opinion that we believe in one baptism. And just as the creeds assert, we believe that baptism to be the forgiveness of our sin. It is a remembrance. It is a call on us back to the promise that Christ gives us through baptism. So before we get back into the large catechism, here's how I think we're going to play out the rest of the this, this series here on baptism before we get to the Lord's Supper. We will finish the uh, large catechism today, looking at these statements on infant baptism, and then we will transition and look at uh, survey scripture again with proof of what the Lutherans believe, but also we will take some time and look at misconceptions, misunderstandings. We'll answer questions about baptism. I actually got a story posted right now as I record this episode on Instagram fielding questions from people. So we'll have a, like a Q and a segment. We'll have a, you know, how do, how do Lutherans view versus you know, other major views of baptism. And so we will look at that and then we'll look at the misconceptions of baptism. Like, you know, how can we actually assert that it does the things that we say it does? And again, this is strictly a confessional Lutheran pastor sitting here on the mic, you know, reading what Martin Luther wrote, reading what Melanchthon and and his colleagues wrote for the Book of Concord and uh, regurgitating a lot of that and utilizing a lot of what I've learned in seminary to help explain what it is the Lutherans believe. Uh, I'm not, you know, a Jordan Cooper or, you know, a Stephen Paulson or, you know, Chad Bird or any of those guys. Uh, you know, I, I hope to one day to be at that level. I really do. They are, they are extraordinarily intelligent individuals. And uh, I, I, you know, even Chris Roseboro, I mean, extraordinary, extraordinarily intelligent. And so I, you know, am encouraged by their wealth of knowledge. And that helps drive me to learn more about the faith that I confess. And so reading this and doing these studies with you has helped encourage me to uh, continue to grow and learn. So we, uh, you know, touched base on a couple of the points last week. We didn't get too far into it, but I want to, you know, and if I revisit one uh, that we said last week, that's fine um, because, you know, I think, you know, what we'll end up doing at the end of this series again is, is kind of summarizing these episodes and making uh, one single episode that kind of surveys all of these episodes. So hopefully you follow along and get all the meat that I'm giving you in these episodes and then you go you know for the dessert and get the the summary if you would so statement 49 luther says that the baptism of infants is pleasing to christ is sufficiently proved by from his own work god has sanctified many who have been 
thus baptized and has given them the Holy Spirit. Even today, there are a few whose doctrine and life attest that they have the Holy Spirit. Similarly, by God's grace, we have been given the power to interpret the scriptures and know Christ, which is impossible without the Holy Spirit. Now, if God did not accept the baptism of infants, he would not have given any of them the Holy Spirit, nor any part of him. In short, all this time down to the present day, no man on earth could be have been a Christian, since God has confirmed baptism through the gifts of his Holy Spirit, as we have perceived in some of the fathers, such as St. Bernard, Garrison, John Huss, and others. And since the Holy Christian Church will abide until the end of the world, our adversaries must acknowledge that infant baptism is pleasing to God, for he can never be in conflict with himself, support lies or wickedness, or give his grace and spirit for such ends. This is the best and strongest proof for the simple and unlearned. For no one can take from us and overthrow this article, I believe, one holy Catholic church, the communion of saints, etc. Further, we will not primarily we are not primarily concerned whether we baptize the baptized person believes or not. For the latter case, baptism does not become invalid. And we talked a pretty extensively about that on last week's episode. But I, I highlighted those statements again because I really want to, you know, continue to bring kind of the the truth of Scripture forward. You know, there's a text in the Gospels where Jesus is preaching and uh, the disciples try to refrain children coming from him, coming to him, and Jesus essentially rebukes his disciples for their ignorance and says, allow the children to come to me. And then we get the famous verse that it would be better for somebody to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the depths of the sea than to be uh, caught, you know, uh, causing a child to sin. And so we, we see the love that Christ has for children evidenced throughout scripture, not only just in the fact that he ministers to them, but also he's, he raised a few from the dead. He cured some sick and provided for them. Uh, you know, when he fed the thousands of people in the two separate instances, the 5,000, 4,000, we know their children were present there. And so it's, it's, it's crucial to know that infant baptism is pleasing to God. Again, it comes back to the stance that baptism is a sacrament and it is God doing the work through the preacher by using the water and his word, pairing them together and providing a means of, of faith to come to the individual. All right, let's get moving on here. Uh, statement 53, everything depends upon the word and commandment of God. This perhaps is a rather subtle point. But it is based upon what I've already said, that baptism is simply water and God's word in it with each other. That is, the word accompanies water, baptism, uh, and then baptism is valid, even though faith be lacking. For my faith does not constitute baptism, but receives it. Baptism does not become invalid, uh, even if it is wrongly received or used, but it is not bound to the faith by our word. Uh, so then he moves on to assert this. And again, this is, this is the assertion that baptism is crucial and it, and it's, you know, when it's paired to the word of God, it is God coming to us and re giving us the faith that we never had statement 55. So you see the objection of the secretarians is absurd. 
as we have said, even infants did not believe, which, however, is not the case, as we have proved. Still, their baptism would be valid, and no one should rebaptize them. Similarly, the sacrament of the altar is not uh, vitilated if someone approaches it with an evil purpose, and he would not be permitted on account of that abuse to take again in that, same, that selfsame hour. If he had not really received the sacrament the first time, that would be a blasphemous and desecrate the sacrament in the worst way. How dare we think that God's word and ordinance should be wrong and invalid if we use it wrongly. Therefore, I say to you, if you do not believe before, then before afterwards and confess, the baptism indeed is right, but unfortunately I did not receive it rightly. I myself and all who are baptized must say before God, I come here in my faith and in the faith of others. Nevertheless, I cannot build on the fact that I believe for many people are praying for me. On this I build that it is thy word and commandment. Just so I go to the sacrament of the altar, not on the strength of my own faith, but on the strength of Christ's word. I may be strong or weak. I leave it in God's hands. This I know, however, that he has commanded me to go eat, drink, etc., and that he gives me his body and blood, and he will not lie or deceive me. We do the same in infant baptism. We bring the child with the purpose and hope that he may believe, and we pray God to grant him faith, but we do not baptize him on this account, but solely on the command of God. Why? Because we know that God does not lie. My neighbor and I, in short, all men may err and deceive, but God's word cannot err. Therefore, only presumptions and stupid persons draw the conclusion that there is no true faith, there also can be no true baptism. Likewise, I might argue, if I have no faith, then Christ is nothing. Or again, if I'm not obedient, then father, mother, and magistrates are nothing. It is correct to conclude that when anybody does not do what he should, the thing he misuses has no existence or no value. My friend, Rather, invent the argument to conclude precisely because baptism has been wrongly received. It is the existence and value that the saying goes. Uh, it's German here, but I'm going to skip ahead. That is, misuse does not destroy the substance, but confirms its existence. God remains no less gold if the harlot wears it in sin and shame. Let the conclusion, therefore, be that baptism always remains valid and retains its integrity even if only one person were baptized, and he, moreover, moreover, did not have true faith. For God's ordinance and word cannot be changed or altered by man. But these, these fantics are so blinded that they do not discern God's word or commandment. They regard baptism only as water in the brook or in a pot, and the magistrates only as ordinary people. And because they neither... they because they see neither faith nor obedience, they conclude that these ordinances in of themselves are invalid. He lurks, here lurks a sneaky, sedacious devil that would snatch the crown from the rulers and trample it under foot and would, and in addition, pervert the nullify God's work and ordinances. We must therefore be watchful and well-armed and not allow ourselves to be turned over to the word, turned aside from the word regarding baptism merely as an empty sign as the fa uh, fantics have done, have dreamed. So he's asserting the fact here that baptism, you know, is a means by which God is commanded 
it is a means by which God has ordained man to go through with. This is just a common, you know, standing point from the interpretation of scripture that we would value or receive the gift of faith through baptism. Again, not something that we merely do on our own. But this is something that God does through the water and word to us. This is the right use of baptism amongst Christians signified by baptizing with water, where this amendment of life does not take place, but the old man is given free reign and continually grows stronger. Baptism is not used but resisted. Those who are outside of Christ can only grow worse day by day. It is as the proverb truly says, evil unchecked becomes worse and worse. If a year ago a man was proud and greedy, this year he is much more so. Uh, Vice thus grows and increases in him from his youth up. A young child who has no particular vice becomes vicious and unchastised as he grows. When he reaches full manhood, the real vices become more and more potent day by day. And Luther goes on to demonstrate the wickedness here of man. He goes into this statement 74. He says here, you see the baptism both by its power and its, and its significance comprehends also the third sacrament formerly called penance, which is really nothing else other than baptism. What is repentance but an earnest attack on the old man and an entering upon the new life in which you live in repentance, therefore you are walking in baptism, which not only announces this new life, but produces, produces begins, and promotes it. And so, again, it's it's this it's the clarification of what you know Luther is asserting here, that it would be foolish for us to withhold baptism from somebody based upon our own preconceived notions. God has commanded it that all Christians should baptize. This is why for 1,500 years, baptism was firmly accepted throughout the church age uh, to allow the children to be baptized because they were being you know, welcomed into the family. It was an initiation for the child to go through baptism and welcomed into the Christian family. So it would be foolish for us to withhold that until they were at a proper age. And then we would be essentially removing and stripping away God from the sacrament if we position baptism by a means of which the person must make a profession of faith. They must demonstrate to us that they have faith. They must demonstrate to us that they know the scripture or they can, or, you know, whatever it may be. And then they can be baptized when in fact we see the reality of scripture being much different that we you know as i clarified a couple of weeks ago that matthew 28 gives us the you know kind of the formula for making disciples we don't make disciples and then baptize and then teach them we make disciples by doing one this is a or the first thing we do baptize this person and then b we teach them so here's how that plays out into this, you know, whole scheme of things. If we take Matthew 28's, I, I call it a formula, right, of baptism here, and we say we go into the world to make disciples. Well, as I've clarified, we make disciples by baptizing and teaching. Okay, now if we have a Christian family, we baptize that infant or that young child, and then we teach that young child. 
So as they grow, they w- might become disciples. That doesn't mean that baptism and us teaching them that they will hold to it all their life. But if they believe and backslide, fall away, leave the faith, there is still a good chance that God will draw them back. I've heard numerous stories of people throughout my time, just a short time being a preacher, of God calling back a particular person who grew up in the church, thought they believed something, and then went on their adult life and, and didn't go to church. I, the same way, you know, I was baptized and confirmed in the Lutheran church, and, you know, I did all the youth events, and then I left the church after we got married, my wife and I, and I stopped going to church for uh, many number of years. Finally, my wife calls me back into the church as God is working through her to drag me back to church. And that is now where I ended up as being a preacher. So it's not always a false. It's not always a lost hope that somebody would be baptized and taught and then walks away from the faith because truly for the Christian, we may not walk away from the faith. We may uh, put it on the back burner for a while. We may, it's just not that we necessarily don't believe. It's just that in our minds and our eyes, we have other priorities in life. We want to achieve, you know, success in our careers. We want to have a good marriage. We want to have raised good kids and we want them to participate in all these things. And so faith becomes an element to which we put on the back burner, but that doesn't make us any less of a believer and it doesn't make God any less of God. It, it does not apply anything to any of that. It just merely is man's own means by, you know, sliding essentially back and forth on this pendulum throughout his life where he's a believer and he's faithful and he's fruitful. And then there are seasons where he's just in the dumps, depressed, tired, worn out, lethargic, whatever it may be. So this is why when we come back to Matthew 28, it is crucial for us to appoint for the early church to, and, and, and through today that infants should be baptized. Now I was reading a particular book. I'm not going to get into the to the details because it's not my position to harp on you know an author that I would mostly agree with. Uh, but I found in one particular section of this book, uh, he was highlighting some of the early church fathers and he was utilizing some of their words, uh, some of their quotes that would you know kind of assert that they did not believe in infant baptism, that they actually. Uh, would assert that baptism should only be for those who can profess faith, which would give validity to the more Baptist uh, and Calvinist uh, view that baptism is only an ordinance. It is a means by which man comes and makes this proclamation of faith and is a demonstration of their uh, essentially obedience and commitment to becoming a Christian. And, and, you know, and I read some of that and I, and I just kind of was like, boy, I don't agree with his approach to this because again, the problem with taking a early church father, and this is the same problem that we're dealing with on social media with, you know, the, the person who's spouting Christian universalism. When we take a particular quote and we use it for either end and, and, and I'll be, I'll admit that we could use, you know, early church fathers, you know, for instance, I've got St. Jerome up here on the screen. It says this, uh, is responsible, f- uh, backtrack a little bit cause he's responsible for this view for he wrote repentance is a second plank in which we must swim ashore after the ship founders 
in which we embark when we enter the Christian church. Rewinding a little bit, this is what Luther is saying. But we need not again have water poured over us, right? Signifying the fact that man does not need to be baptized again. Even if we are immersed in the water a hundred times, it would nevertheless be only one baptism. And the effect and significance of baptism would continue and remain. Repentance, therefore, is nothing else than a return and approach to baptism to uh, resume and practice what had earlier been uh, begun but abandoned. I say this to correct the opinion which has long prevailed among us that our baptism is something past which we can no longer use after falling again into sin. We have such a notion because we regard baptism with only the light of work performed for all. So then this is where St. Jerome's quote comes in. Repentance is the second plank in which we must swim ashore after the ship ship founders and which we embark when we enter the Christian church. This interpretation deprives baptism of its value, making it no further use to us. Therefore, the statement is incorrect. The ship does not founder since, as we have said, it is God's ordinance and not the work of ours. But it does happen that we slip and fall out of the ship. If anybody does fall out, he should immediately head for the ship and cling to it, only until he can climb aboard again and sail on it as he had done before. So Luther's using a, an early church father you know, in their particular view and, and disagreeing with it. And I think it becomes dangerous for Christians to just take the early church father's single quotes uh, at face value without truly understanding the fullness and the full work of it. And I, and I would venture to say that, you know, hopefully all of you would agree with me on that, you know, as, as Nick from Christ is a cure has taken a strong stance against this Christian universalist. And he goes on and says, you know, people like Athanasian and, and all these other guys that this person's quoting to represent universalism He's saying you must read all of it, all of their writings. To cherry pick an early church father for either side, and whether it's in support of infant baptism or in support of, you know, a, a credo Baptist view, if you if you only just go and cherry pick, you you can do either side. You can make either one, and we've done an episode with the early church fathers, uh, two episodes I believe actually uh, on the early church fathers and what they kind of, you know, what they, how they took scripture and explained their view of it. And so we could take those verses and we could take those quotes and we can pin them against maybe something else that they said elsewhere that might seem contradictory to that. The early church fathers, just as much as the reformers and just as much as preachers today are fallible men. We all sin. We all make mistakes. We all, uh, you know, contradict ourselves from one point to another in life. And what I may believe, believe today uh, may be defined and honed to a sharper point in my later years. You know, just as Luther started out the Reformation merely just attacking the indulgences of the Roman Catholic Church to later then essentially assert a whole new uh, view of Christian doctrine, right? Because now through Lutheran or through Luther, we have the Lutherans because we are convicted that how Luther read scripture and interpreted scripture fits the way we read and interpret scripture. And again, that's not for everybody because not everybody's a Lutheran. Many people are Calvinist. Many people are Presbyterian. They're Baptist. They're Methodist, whatever it may be, whatever your cup of tea is, you have 
essentially clung to that reformer or the the group of reformers that planted your denomination or your view and and you hold on to their hermeneutic and you hold on to it dearly and in some cases you put these men up on a pedestal and you say that they can't do anything wrong i hope you don't do that because we know that all of these men were fallible uh, luther had drinking problems he was angry a lot in fact, he writes in a lot of his uh, books that he has written, you know, various insults and, and spewing this to his opponents. It's pretty common. I mean, obviously, we know that that time period is much different 500 years later than today. Uh, but we should also be reminded that these men are sinners. These men have shortcomings. But what we need to understand and look is how can we say, okay, does what Luther say in the large catechism, does that line up with what scripture says? Can we go back and assert that infants should be baptized? And can we, can we read scripture to give us that without taking what we think and pushing it into scripture, whether it's infant baptism or creedal baptism? Can we take what we believe and have it explained to us by scripture? And I think that's the most crucial and critical way we can take on this view of baptism, mainly by looking at how Matthew writes it in the 20th chapter to make disciples. And you do this by baptizing and teaching them. And it doesn't give us an age limit. It doesn't tell us that they have to make a profession first. It doesn't tell us any of that. It says we are to baptize these people first. So whether it's the infants, the young child, or the old man. We are preaching the gospel to them. We are sharing Christ with them. And we understand that there's a difference between somebody who's never heard Christ before and comes to him later in life and is baptized. We know that for the Christians, for the families to continue to grow and flourish, we baptize our children and we raise them up, catechizing them and teaching them all of the ways of the Christian faith. So I'm going to wrap the episode here and I am going to continue this series for a few more episodes, I think, and we'll touch touch base mostly on uh, the concepts, misconceptions, and we'll do that Q&A session uh, in the next couple of episodes, and then we'll do a summary episode to uh, help provide, you know, clarification over all of the views that the Lutherans believe. And, and, I, and I hope that that will be sufficient, but I can certainly tell you it won't be exhausting of the scriptures. Uh, you know, no, no matter how long I take it, it will not be uh, fully exhausting of the scriptures. So that's that. Guys, have a great week. We'll see you next week. Uh, well, we'll see you Friday. Friday. God bless and take care.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.